All right, all right. So uh, we got rid of the folks on the radio. Howdy. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for staying with us. Um, so here's what is going to happen this week and moving forward for um, for overtime and for our candidate interview series. Uh, like I said, during the show, we recorded a 45-minute long interview with Lou Burdett. He is a gubernatorial candidate. He's a Republican. We talked to him about education and the coal miners' strike. He had some pretty pretty cool things to say about the coal miner strike if he gets elected and if he um and if he actually goes through with it so uh what we're gonna do this week is we have just been we've been really really busy um so we haven't really had much time to get together a good overtime for you get to get get another uh, overtime guest. Uh, what we like to do usually for overtime is go a little bit deeper for in, in like labor stuff. Uh, talk about you know like a, uh, last week we talked to Connor Lewis about strategy, and you know I felt like that was a good overtime segment because most of the folks who listen to us just on the radio are going to be more interested, and it's going to be more relevant that super specific like okay, how do we make our unions better? Whereas on the radio, we try to do more like public facing kind of. Um, you know, more 101 level like union stuff, right? So we try to go a little bit deeper in overtime, and that's what we like to do. Um, and 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 but this week, uh, we we were just we were just a little bit too busy, and we weren't able to do that. So I hope you'll um, I hope that's all right. So instead of that, what we're going to do this week for the overtime is we're just going to play the full interview. So, you know, you already heard 10 minutes of that interview with Lou Burdett, and we're we're just going to slap the rest of it in after I finish with this, and, um, and that's going to be the overtime for this week. But going forward, what we're going to do, I think, is um, – what we're going to do is – uh, we're going to have like a candidate series that's going to be separate from overtime. So our podcast feed is actually going to have three podcasts on some weeks whenever there's a candidate that we feel like is interesting and relevant um, that we want to talk to. That way, because, you know, like we say, when we're introducing Lou, you know, like we're not a, you know, we don't want to miss out. We don't want the the talking to candidates to interfere with some of this other stuff that we feel like is maybe a bit more important. So we wanted to put it off to the side, but we also feel that it's not, you know, it's not nothing. And, and so, you know, uh, if, um, but if, if you're like totally not interested, like if everyone in our audience is just like, yeah, I'm really not interested at all in the candidate interviews, then let us know. And we just won't waste our time. Right. Cause it takes time to come to the, come to the station and pre-tape those interviews. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> If it's like a resounding, yeah, we're really not interested in the candidate stuff, then do let us know and let us know if that's something that you do. If you do want us to do those long form conversations with people that are running for office in Alabama, let us know that, too. We want to know, you know, we want to know what what you're interested in. Absolutely. Uh, And on that note, really, any content ideas that you have Mm -hmm. or critiques that you have. Uh, if there's things that we're doing that you want to see more of, or if there's things we're doing that you want to see less of, or if you have some good guest ideas or good topic ideas, uh, we are all ears because ultimately we're doing this 
for everybody, uh, not just yeah. to hear ourselves talk, but we really, you know, we want it to be worthwhile. We want it to be worth your time because the fact is you spent an hour and a half or more with us, or even if it was just a couple minutes on a clip, you mm-hmm. spent your precious time listening to us talk about the labor movement and Alabama politics, and we really do value your feedback. So please do keep those questions and concerns and ideas coming our way. We, we do take it seriously, and we appreciate it very, very much. Yep, absolutely. So um, with all of that preamble out of the way, here is the full, unedited conversation with Lou Burdett, candidate for governor. This is going to be a special episode of the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison and Adam Keller. Um, and it's going to be, I think, like a continuing series. Um, and it's going to be uh, Politicians Suck. That is, <laughs> And I think, Lou, I've, I've seen some of your interviews and, and you would agree with me on that. Uh, that and, 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 you know, I, I, I think I'm going to title it that. Maybe I won't. Maybe I will. But because we're abundantly clear on this show that what's going to make your life better is generally speaking. Speaking, not politicians. It's going to be self-organization, getting together with your brothers and sisters on the job and in your community to make, uh, and that's going to make a much quicker, more immediate, and more effective way of making your life better. Uh, and additionally, uh, if you do that, you come together, form a union with your brothers and sisters, that's going to make it so much easier to get the things that you want from politicians because you're going to have that organizational muscle to make them do it, right? And that's what the show is all about. So I don't think anyone's going to be confused about uh, us thinking that voting or not voting for this or that person is the end-all be-all of political activism, but... For better or worse, politicians have a lot of power in our lives, and it's election season. So we're going to have this uh, as a semi-regular series outside of our main and overtime shows so that we don't miss any good stuff, uh, where we're talking to basically any candidate that uh, uh, with some amount of relevance to the audience to help educate folks about their options when they go to the voting booth and hopefully illuminating a few things that some other shows won't. So the first person that we're going to be doing this with is Lou Burdett. He is running for governor of the uh, of the great state of Alabama. Lou, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. Jacob, thank you so much for having me, and I couldn't agree more. It wasn't politicians was not supposed to be a lifetime job, was it? And um, you know that's why I'm running. Is we haven't had any change in my entire lifetime. I'm 63 years old. People ask me all the time, "Why are you running for governor?" Because I so dearly love this state, and we've been at the bottom my entire lifetime. And we have great people. We have a great state. We do not have to be at the bottom. But that's where lifetime politicians keep us in this state is at the bottom. Yep, a- absolutely. Uh, I mean, I-, I think that's just that that's just a statement of fact, basically from uh, uh, from the record. <laughs> Uh, Adam, really quick, we're recording on on the main board, but just make sure that we're recording on OBS and Zoom. That way, we've got uh, we we make sure that we have uh, some backups available. So, uh, but Lou, the first thing that I wanted to get into is um, the first thing that I wanted to get into is that uh, the first thing on your website, like if somebody goes to your website, which is in 22com that's that's a pretty uh, pretty easy thing to say, LouIn22.com, uh, the first thing that you see about you is that uh, you are a proven public company executive. 
Um, and and so you know this is something that you're proud of, right? That you that, that you believe is something that that makes you more qualified, maybe than not, to be governor of Alabama. And this, I mean, it's you know it's so common you almost get sick of it, right? I'm a businessman. We need a businessman in office. Blah blah blah. And and like for me. I have a difficult time understanding like why I as a working person would vote for a boss as an elected leader. You know, uh, we asked folks uh, to tell us their first sure. thought when they hear the word business leader. And uh, these are the responses that we got. We got grifter, someone who doesn't work, nothing good, thief, plutocrat, tyrant. Right. Um, and I think that that tracks <laughs> with a lot of people's lives with going to work day in and day out. They're doing the work. The boss tells them that they aren't doing it good enough while they sit in their office and take all the credit while making more money than the rest of us. So tell me, like, why should I vote for a businessman as a working person? Because, because that hasn't been my track record. My track record is growing up as in the uh, family-owned grocery business. My dad owned a small-town grocery store. I learned a strong work ethic, sacking groceries in my uh, dad's store from really about the earliest age I can remember. I was so little that I could uh, take the, the groceries off the counter, put them in the sacks, and the big boys would have to take them out. And I saw my dad run a small business and uh, work 14 hours a day, six days a week, his entire life. Um, and so that's the environment that I grew up in. I'm an everyday working guy. And I say, I am so glad that I have spent my entire career with a real job in the real world. And no, nobody uh, gave me my position when I worked at Books of Me. And I worked there for 13 years. And I started out at the bottom and I worked my way up to be chief operating officer and grew uh, a, a chain of stores from from 30 stores to over 175 when I left, uh, from 26 million dollars in volume and to, to 250 million in volume across 16 states, and and uh, a little over 200 employees to over 3,000 employees. And that kind of business experience, common sense business experience, is important to running this state to know how to manage people to know how to manage a multi-million dollar budget. So n nobody gave me anything. I worked hard, uh, sometimes 100 hours a week uh, when we were taking our company public uh, back in that day. But then the last 19 years is running a, 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 a nonprofit in Birmingham called King's Home, helping abused youth and moms and kids uh, start over in li life, have hope and opportunity in life. And, and so running a nonprofit uh, is important to have business common sense. And I think that's what we need is, is, is a change in Montgomery uh, away from lifetime politicians that have kept us in the bottom to have a common sense business leader that will flip it upside down that doesn't owe any favors nobody's got influence over me and i can't wait to work for that kind of change in montgomery well let's let's talk a little bit about your experience at books a million you said that you were there um you know, I, I don't know. Uh, you said you worked your way from the bottom. I, I don't know what what specifically position you started at, but you you said you were there for thirteen years, and, and you got there, and and, and um, by the time you left, you were the chief operating officer. Um, and and I just you know I, I looked around a little bit, and some of these sites, you know, it's it's not like they're. Um, 
they're 100% accurate, but I think generally speaking they're, you know, they're more or less in the ballpark and Glassdoor says with very high confidence that um, the average starting wage for a books a million bookseller is $9 an hour. Indeed shows basically the same with general managers making $13 an hour, shift leads making $11 an hour. Uh, Payscale is another one of these types of sites that show basically the same thing with benefits specialists and management like general managers, retail managers having the opportunity to get up to $23 an hour. So like that seems to me to be not good. <laughs> right? I mean like I I couldn't imagine having to live on $9 an hour. Could you? Oh, yeah, me either. But I you know, I don't know what year that was referencing. Uh I've been gone for 25 years from Books a Million. So I was with them from 1985 before we were ever called Books a Million. Uh, to 1998, the end of 1997. So I was there for 13 years, um, had a great experience. We had a great team. Um, and, you know, pay, pay was probably in that range back in the uh, 1980s and, and early 1990s. But like I said, I've been gone for 25 years. And the last 19 years I've spent at King's Home. And I, hey, and I know today at King's Home where we're helping uh, the, the, the residents that we have, we about have about 125 residents at any given time um, and have residential group homes, direct care to help, um, like I said, the abused uh, start over in life, find hope and opportunity. We can't hire anybody uh, for, for that wage. We haven't hired anybody in that uh, that wage range in 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 since the early two thousands. Maybe uh, when I first came to Kingston, we even started at ten or eleven dollars, and today it's fifteen to twenty dollars uh, for direct care hourly positions. Starting out, and of course, our house parents and and others and in uh, different levels of our organization make much more than that. So I can't speak to books a million because I've been gone for 25 years. Gotcha. Okay. I see. I thought uh, I was thinking that it was maybe a bit more recent. Those are, those are numbers that are, uh, you know, what it's like today. If you were to go and, and get, try to get a job at books a million, these are about the wages. That I would these... be shocked if they could hire anybody. Hey, McDonald's hires for $15 an hour. I would be shocked if anybody could be hired uh, uh, for, hey, for any job. I'm not talking. Well, about, I mean, you know, there's just... a report that came out that uh, in 2021, 40% of Alabamians made less, 40% of working Alabamians made less than $15 an hour, um, which right. is astounding. And I'm sure that's true in rural areas because I swear, you know, I grew up in rural Alabama, Randolph County, and Roanoke, and, and um, you know, some of the more rural parts of Alabama, maybe that's what the, um, uh, the wage range is in some of those areas. And that's what I want to work to change also is, you know, we, we got to improve education in Alabama, we can't be 52nd in math, uh, 47th in education overall. And when we have better education, especially in the rural areas, because we have great schools um, in this state, mm-hmm. um, and but but in the rural areas like where I grew up, um, our schools need a lot of help. They need a lot of change, um, and so that's one. We got to have education as the number one priority year after year until we raise up out of the bottom. And then we still got to keep it 
the number one priority because unless we have better educated citizens, just like you're saying, we can't have better jobs. We can't have higher paying jobs. So I agree with you 100 percent, you know, and that's got to be in all areas of Alabama, not just the metropolitan areas. Okay, so let let's talk about education. You mentioned that's one of your um, one of your top priorities. What would be the uh, Lou N twenty two education agenda? Take out Common Core. Common Core's got to go. Um, you know, we can't be fifty second in math. We're fifty second in math, and they just passed a bill today. To me, that's just heartbreaking. Today in the legislature, they passed a bill. hadn't been signed into law yet. Um, but I'm sure the governor's going to sign it, um, that they're going to hire 700 math coaches to teach college degree math teachers in our schools how to do common core math. If we have to hire 700 math coaches, teachers, to teach math teachers how to teach common core, then there's a problem with common core, and it's got to go. That would be my first priority. Then we got a budget right, 93% percent earmarking in, in Alabama, the highest earmarked state uh, in America. The next closest is Michigan at a little over 60. That's got to change. We can't budget right. We can't budget right educationally. we got to have literacy programs that work to get our kids caught up in literacy. I was meeting with the mayor of Huntsville not long ago, and he said we have 400 uh, uh, openings, job openings at Mazda, new automotive plant in the Huntsville area pays fifty to $60,000 a year starting, great paying jobs, and we can't get enough applicants to fill the positions because they can't read an application at a third or fourth grade level. So we got to have literacy programs that get our kids caught up in reading and have dual enrollment, not for college credit necessarily, but for vocational uh, credit. Um, and we need that throughout the state to have dual enrollments so that we can get kids on a career path for success in high school. Uh, that would be another top priority. And then taking our community colleges and retooling them so that we are prepared for professional um, jobs coming out of high school. Uh, professional jobs like electricians. I was talking with the owner of a, a big electrical company in, in Birmingham. He said, my master." Degree, uh, master uh, electricians can make over $100,000 a year, and I'm desperate for electricians. These are the kinds of career paths uh, for great careers that uh, our young people could uh, should be pursuing because not every kid needs to go to a four-year college. I, I think that we would uh, uh, we would definitely agree that there is we're very big fans of of the uh, uh, of the trade union apprenticeship programs and the way that they do that as opposed to the non-union apprenticeship Amen. programs and the things that they are able to um, to actually educate their uh, their apprentices about I mean the um, the the quality of work that you're going to be able to do coming out of a four or five year trade union apprenticeship program as opposed to a 12 week you know non-union apprenticeship program is is a lot different and you can tell it in the wage differentials that you get between these non-union and, and the union yep. uh, trade jobs as well it's something like Oh man, it was it was like twenty five or thirty forty percent of non union trade workers are on government benefits, like they're on welfare, um, and and you know I, I so let's 
talk about that in just a second. And, but- and, the, and ju- yeah, and just the last point on education is is you know right now big debate is on school choice, and I'm I'm generally for school choice, but what I'm really for um, because. Uh, I, we we have about 80 kids in in our program uh, throughout Central Alabama at any given time. These are teenagers that come from horribly abusive situations, um, you know. And a in a child's zip code should not determine their educational future. And I see a lot of our kids that come into King's Home where they have been in areas where school choice would have benefited them. But where I grew up in rural Alabama, school choice isn't a big deal because parents can't afford to drive their kids over to the next county uh, for them to have an opportunity to go to a different school. But what I'm really for is a child's educational savings account that goes directly to the child. Um, Funds are allocated so that parents don't have access to that money, but it's used specifically and strictly for education so that parents can make the choice for their particular area where their child would get the best education. Is it in public school? Is it homeschooling? Is it charter schools? Is it a private school? And so parents would have that kind of choice to make those decisions for, for their children uh, where they would have the opportunity to do that. So that's what I'm really for is seeing us allocate educational dollars part of our budget that goes directly to the child so that there is real school choice for the parents and it's strictly used for that purpose yeah well so i think that uh, you know adam will i'm interested in what you've got to say but we've talked about this a few times we've talked about del marsh's bill a few times um and for del marsh's bill uh and and the um and, and you know it, it's very sil- it's very similar to a lot of these other quote unquote school choice. I mean, they're really school privatization schemes. It seems to me these vouchers, these uh, things like that, and they don't seem to work. Uh, in Louisiana, after two years in the program, a student who started in the fifty third percentile dropped to the thirty seventh percentile in math. By and large, those negative effects persisted through year four, particularly in math and science. In Indiana, we saw initial dips in math that persisted for four years. An Ohio study showed that even after three years in the program, the negative impacts of using a private school voucher persisted. So, I mean, these there are multiple studies that are showing that these quote-unquote education savings accounts, these school vouchers, they're not really working even for the people that use them. And of course, it's not helpful for the people who are left behind uh, to have their schools have less funding. Um, and and so, you know, we, we do know some things that help is w- things that help schools perform well. We've got uh, th- we've got several schools in Alabama that are below the poverty line and actually have like test scores, which of course that's not everything, but they have test scores that are like higher than Mountain Brook. And the thing that we see across all these schools are that teachers have high expectations for students and they're invested in their students. Teachers take control. Teachers actually have control in their classroom. They have plentiful uh, support to help teachers get better at both what they know and how to teach it. There's a constant assessment of where students stand and what they need help with, and they have strong community support. Like, that's not even necessarily funding. It's just making sure that teachers are empowered and that, you know, that we're not out there demonizing and attacking teachers and we're not trying to, you know, send their students off to to private schools and put money into the CEO of a private school's um, pocket. 
Right. And that's why I said, you, you know, I gave you lots of different options that where parents could not. I'm not an advocate for private schools. I'm an advocate for for choices that make sense. That could be a charter school. That could be homeschooling. Um, maybe it is a private school, but so that or it could be or it could be another school within their own district. So that's where I think choices do make sense um, sometimes. I also agree with what you said. I met with the mayor of Thomasville, Alabama, in the Black Belt, and and that was uh, part of what he shared: is how successful, how invested they are as a city into their school system, how they partner with their school system and support them, how they do have great teachers. And Jacob, you're you're exactly right. Um, you know, when you have communities like that that get invested, want to make a difference. Um, and the difference it could make. And, and one of the things that he talked about was the importance of dual enrollment and what that's meant to their uh, their students, where, where if they want to take college credit, they can, or they can uh, also be in dual enrolled in career tech kind of jobs, vocational kinds of jobs, and they're on a career path to success. That's what I want to see um, statewide in all schools and have opportunities for kids to have that kind of success. Jacob, I, I was going to jump in here yeah. while we're on education. I'm a former educator and uh, from a family of educators. And there's a couple of things here where I think we have some common ground. I definitely uh, agree that more options for children in terms of uh, the dual enrollment, because you're right that four-year college degrees, not for everybody. Uh, there are some great jobs in the trades that are desperate for, for young labor. And so I think yes. there's a ton of potential there for partnerships uh, to funnel kids into these apprenticeship programs so that they can leave high school, uh, enter a career, and make a good wage with a good pension, good benefits. And I think there's tons of opportunity to partner with our trade unions on that because they they and, know how to do and it. our community colleges absolutely yep. i think workforce development yep yeah so i think you could have more collaboration between all those entities to you know increase the enrollment and, and to make sure that the folks who go through the program are well trained and and know how to do the job correctly um I also agree that you know a child zip code should not be determinant of their academic opportunities or their success I think when you look at the evidence, what we see in education is the outputs reflect the inputs. And the largest determinant of test scores in education is the student's socioeconomic background. And so until we as a state address poverty and lack of health care, lack of mental health, over-incarceration, and the many other issues that, that plague our state, and as you mentioned, we, we rank at the bottom of virtually everything – and so it is all connected, and, and our schools alone can't solve those issues uh, because they can only do what they can with the children they they take. Uh, and public schools do take all children, which is unique compared to you know the private schools. Um, but there were a couple other things I wanted to, to mention. In terms of the earmarking, historically the reason why educators have been so resistant to the – consolidation of the education trust fund with the general budget are you know less earmarking overall is because what we fear and what we found in other places is that when education doesn't have this dedicated funding sources and dedicated budget 
de- dedicated revenue streams strictly for education. It is too tempting for legislators to take this combined budget and use it as an opportunity to slash education funding uh, to put elsewhere. And while we have some pretty significant needs in our state for uh, everything from our prison system, which is failing, to our uh, transportation and infrastructure, you know, it shouldn't come at the expense of school funding. And in terms of the education savings accounts, I do have to push back here because I agree, Jacob, you've laid it out there. We we know that it's not effective or successful in the states where it has been tried. And we really don't take this kind of approach with any other aspect of public services. You know, I don't get a savings account for public safety, for example, and, and get to take my money away from the local police force and, and buy my own security system. And it is kind of a bizarre thing for me to take that approach as a way to improve education because ultimately, as you said, the zip code shouldn't determine that child's opportunities or their success. So the goal should be that every child has an excellent public education right there in their community. And I think if we take that as the number one goal, everything else sort of falls into place in terms of how we achieve that. If we start to look at ways where, you know, a handful here and a handful there can benefit at the expense of the majority, because every child who leaves with these this funding that's attached to them, that's less funding for their community school. And every child that leaves who has the parents with the means and, and uh, opportunities to pull their child out, Typically, that's going to be some of your better performing students or your better behaved students. And so the folks left behind in the public school, the neighborhood community, public school, uh, it's going to be that much more difficult for them to be successful. So I think there's there's sometimes a, a rush to have these solutions in education that may work here and there for certain families in certain times and places at the expense of the majority And ultimately, public education is all about the public, and it's all about ensuring that every child has the opportunity, but it's it's for the good of our whole society. Because we do recognize, and and I think you share this opinion, that ultimately the education of our community affects everything that we do. And it is better as a state to have a better educated uh, public than it is to not. Uh, everything from our economy to our civic society. So those are just a couple of my thoughts. Uh, I, I do agree. 100%. Yeah, I agree with you. And thank you for bringing up the poverty issue, because, again, that's where I grew up in a, in a poor county. Right. Um, and uh, uh, my cousin worked in the literacy po- uh, program for the State Board of Education for years, finished her career there. And she's one of the first ones I, I called to talk to because she spent her whole career uh, as a teacher yeah. um, and, and, and committed to literacy program and advancing reading in Alabama and getting kids caught up. And she exactly what you said, Adam, is, is that it's not just an educational issue in Alabama. It's a family dynamic issue with what's going on at home with those kids and what kind of support they get at home. And I see that at King's home with the 80 kids that we have uh, there and what kind of support that that we give our kids. Um, 
And it's also the poverty issue that you brought up, that it's all of that wrapped up because if you got chaos at home and you got poverty at home and, and the kid is coming to school with all of that baggage and coming to school hungry um, and hadn't been fed really over the weekend sometimes, um, that those are real issues across the rural areas of Alabama. And I agree 100% that we have to have programs that work uh, to advance education for all kids in this state. And, and if some of these programs work in some areas, that but we gotta make sure that we're uh, promoting and helping kids in all areas. That's why I said school choice doesn't work in all areas. That's why I'm not this big, huge advocate of school choice. Uh, you know, and I said that at the beginning, it doesn't work in rural areas. So we have to have different programs in the rural areas to help specifically help those kids. And that's why I use Thomasville as a, as an example, you know, of a community that is committed to getting behind their school system and partnering with them and supporting them and the advances that they've made uh, have really been phenomenal. Um, and I applaud communities like Thomasville, they're in the black belt, uh, that get a lot of knocks along the way for, you know, if it wasn't for the black belt that we wouldn't be 47th with, in education. Well, we're still 47th in education and what we've been doing hadn't worked. So we got to yeah. try some new things to, to move this state forward. Well, you know, I'm interested in, 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 in figure in. in you know, obviously, for for education and 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 for any issue, you're going to be talking to experts once you get in. You're, you're not going to be able to have every single thing laid out. And I'm interested right. in who you're going to be going to. T- uh, for some of these things, because in my mind, it would seem like, okay, the fir- the people that we talk to are the people that do the work. And obviously, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I am happy to say, I'm happy to admit my bias that I, you know, I'm a working person, I'm a union person. Uh, but just generally speaking, for any job, it, it seems like the people that you, that, that know how best to do the work and know what needs to be done to do the work better are the people that do the work. And so I'm a bit concerned about your position or or your stance towards uh, organizations like the AEA because, um, you know, they're, they're the teachers, right? Oh, wanna, uh, the AEA I wanna, yeah, is, is the organization of teachers. And in another podcast, you've said we've got to have somebody who's going to stand up and and fight the AEA and and take away teacher tenure. And and you know, so these are things that coming in right off the bat, saying like my position towards teachers is that I'm going to be oppositional to them, seems worrying to me. Um, I, I want to work with AEA. You, everywhere I go, I talk about bringing unity to Alabama, not division. I think there are uh, elements of tenure that that when uh, uh, that that I I feel like that there should be ways to to clean up um, uh, teachers that that aren't uh, achieving high results in their classrooms, and there is a way. Um, for to have improvement in those kinds of classrooms uh, because those do hold kids back. That's not doing the right thing uh, for kids. If teachers specifically, just like any other job, just like the job that you have, I'm sure you you have uh, great folks that produce at a very high level and you got other folks that don't. 
And, um, you know, we should always. Well, I mean, tenure has already uh, been and Adam can speak more to this if he'd like. But tenure has already been watered down significantly in the state of Alabama. And basically all it is at this point is is a sort of due process, which, to be fair, many other workers in the state do not have because we're an at will employment state. And, you know, your boss can come in upset in the morning and, and fire you for any reason or no reason at all. And that's not the case with teachers. Your your boss, your your principal, your superintendent actually does have to have a reason uh but as long as they document and, and they sure. show the the harm that is coming to uh, to students and the community because of the uh, uh, b- because of their inaction or or whatever actions it's not actually that difficult to fire a teacher right adam oh it's it's not i was personally involved in a couple dozen of these type of cases where tenured educators were uh, terminated. They had no chance of appeal except for on procedural matters. I personally never saw a single one that won their case uh, because once it got to that point, the school district did have the evidence and they felt pretty – the superintendent, of course, felt positive. They had a majority support on the school board. Um, So it's – I think – and that that's I, another thing that, that I think a know. lot of the uh, the opinions about tenure and, and the rhetoric around tenure uh, don't really is, map is, onto is, reality. Well, it's 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 not in touch with how it is now, particularly after 2011 when uh, the GOP led legislature did reform it, as you mentioned. So, <laughs> I think there were some. Uh, there's some pretty major differences between the current tenure law and the old one uh, prior to 2011 and, and prior to the Republican takeover of the legislature. It was much more difficult to terminate employees uh, back then. Uh, but in listening to your comments, I, I'm going to suggest we probably have one area of common ground on this, which is – you know, in terms of working with folks to improve performance, as it stands now, the law does not require the school district to actually do that before termination. Uh, so if you take, for example, a teacher who's been there 10 years and, you know, the last couple of years, the principal feels like they've been slipping, the performance is not up to snuff, they don't actually have to coach this teacher. They don't have to put a written performance plan into place uh, that with certain benchmarks and professional development. Now, those are best practices, and those are things that you know I personally advocated for in Huntsville, and I know other school districts attempt to do that. But that's one area where perhaps we could find some common ground in, in revising the way tenure is applied in this state, is that if a school district feels strongly enough that a teacher is on the pathway to deserving termination, they should feel strongly enough to try to, you know, improve that performance and salvage not just the career, but, you know, what's happening in the classroom in the meantime as this process plays out. And I think that's where Mississippi's done a good job of, of uh, professional development for teachers. I think that's where they've surpassed us in the last five or six years. You know, we can't we can't say thank God for Mississippi anymore. You know, they're not 52nd in math. We are. Um, and so as a Mississippi native, I got to say uh, that concerns me when <laughs> when we're, we're battling back and forth for last place. And yeah, if Mississippi's exactly. passing us. We got some catching up yeah. to do. <laughs> but, you know, I do want professional development for teachers. I want to partner with AEA. I want to partner with teachers. I want to incentivize teachers who do have great performance 
uh, in the classroom and bonus them that way, that they get extra incentives when they excel and perform and that they're that's measurable in the classroom and their kids are excelling. Um, you know, I want programs like, you know, we got Teach America programs, uh, Adam, that I'm sure you're familiar with. Well, let's have Teach Alabama programs where we're incentivizing young teachers out of college and, and we incentivize them to go to rural areas and they view it as a service, you know, that they get a three to five year commitment and we bonus them to go to our rural schools and, and pour life into these kids. You know, that's the kind of um, advances that I would like to see in education and support our schools and support our communities so that we're partnering and helping. And I think AEA would be, um, I think they would be very positive to those kinds of things. I think they would like to have incentive programs so that their, their teachers could make more money when they perform at high levels uh, in the classroom. I think that's what we want for all teachers and we want it for all kids and let's support teachers uh, develop, developmentally also in their careers. Yeah. As we are, um, we're coming up on, on uh, where you know, you, you've got a, another event here pretty soon. Uh, so I appreciate your time. Want to be respectful of that. Uh, if you would stay just a, a little bit longer, I, I did want to get your, your thoughts on the mine workers. Is it okay if I ju- I'm going to have to jump in a car and they get a little bit loud? Is that okay? No issue with me. Um, <laughs> okay. I just, and I can't see how, if I could see how, I'm not sure how I can't. Um, Usually I can mute um, and okay, I got it. I may mute it while I, I transfer, but I'm still listening and I'm still going to respond. But okay. I'm going to mute while so that it's not a bunch of background noise. All right. Sounds good. I appreciate it. So the, the last thing that I wanted to make sure that we got to, and, and you know, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, we didn't get to everything that I wanted to, to but uh, maybe uh, down the road, especially if you win the primary. Hey, but Jacob, um, there, yeah. is, there is no more important issue than education. We right. have to get this right in Alabama. It is my number one issue. So I am so grateful and thankful that y'all have spent this much time on education. It is the most important issue that we uh, have in Alabama. And how is it not the number one priority of every session? Yet we never see we never see that as the number one priority. So thank you for spending that much time on it because I'm so passionate about it. Absolutely. So the the last thing that I wanted to talk to uh, talk about, and I wanted to make sure that we got to it, is, is the mine workers uh, down in Brookwood. About a thousand of them have been on strike for a year with not a word from the current governor. Uh, one of our U.S. senators, Tommy Tupperville, uh, he came to their union hall, came to their people, and groveled to them for an endorsement during an election. And he said that whatever happens, whether I win or lose, whether you endorse me or don't you can call me whatever you need i'll be there for you well since he's won his election since they've been on strike he has refused to answer their calls uh during a hearing in dc uh where senator from vermont bernie sanders scheduled a hearing on private equity and what it's doing to workers in america um he had the opportunity to address warrior met in front of actual Alabama coal miners and the rest of the country. And instead of talking to them about why 
The CEO was able to retain his position after bankruptcy in 2015. Why he got a $4 million raise. Why, uh, uh, why the board of directors has stayed the same. Why they gave the workers a $6 an hour pay cut. Why they took away uh, the pensions. Why they took away significant parts of their health care. Instead of doing anything like that, instead of talking to them about why aren't they coming to the table and giving them a good deal, he literally read from a Warrior Met press release about how much coal miners, uh, the coal miners there make in Alabama, um, and uh, which the facts on that have been disputed, and and uh, you know, and it, it's just very frustrating. You've got all these people uh, that that love to talk about coal miners, and we've got a thousand of them here <clears throat> in this state, and nobody is talking about them. Nobody cares about them. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, these are folks I've walked on the picket line with people in Trump hats. Right. I mean, these are not, you know, uh, you know, you've got varying you, you've got black and white and liberal and conservative and Republican and Democrat. But more most importantly to me is that they're working Alabamians, they're working folks and they're fighting international private equity firms from new york and australia and dc and uh you know like why does it take any effort at all to 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 come to to say like i support the coal miners instead of these people putting billions of dollars in their pockets so uh you know they've been restricted by county judges this whole time on the picket line, they've they've been limited the number of people that that, that can be on a picket line at once. Uh, seems to me to be a legitimate freedom of speech issue, which we hear about that all the time. And it's never about the government; it's about this or that private company. Um, but here we've actually got the government telling Alabama coal miners when and where and how they can speak. So, if you were elected governor, what would you do for these Alabama coal miners? God forbid they're still on strike. Well, surely, um, you know, after what, coming up on 11, 12 months, right? April 1st will be um, a year. That, right. And, and so it is it, so important that um, all workers have are protected in, in their First Amendment rights. You know, they, are, you, are, you, are you for First Amendment and are you for the Second Amendment? So, of course I am. You know, I'm for all 25 amendments because it just so frustrates me you know, that we have weak spineless politicians, Republicans included, and I call them out, you know, that don't stand up for our Constitution, don't stand up for our First Amendment rights and how important um, that is. And just for the, you know, hey, I'm an everyday working guy. That's been my whole history. Um, and, you know, and certainly support, um, you know, all of our workers in Alabama and how important uh, that is. And so, you know, I always want management, if you want to call it that, and, and, um, uh, and, and labor to be able to work out solutions. And it seems like to me from what I read that labor has been willing to make concessions. So I, I, I don't understand why management isn't willing to make concessions also. Do you think that, you know, we've seen uh, over the course of, of the history of this country, we've seen uh, where strikes are long and drawn out, um, you know, secretaries of labor, actually the U.S. Secretary of Labor um 
Marty Walsh, uh, he brokered a deal between Kellogg's and the BCTGM union to end that strike. We've seen governors come to help mediate strikes in the past. Do you think that that's something that you, that you would be willing to use the office of, of, the, of the governor to do to call out what Warrior Met has been doing, um, you know, to, uh, to come out uh, firmly on the side of the workers and to try to help mediate a, a good solution for the people of Alabama? Absolutely. You know, again, I say in every everywhere I go, every time I'm given the opportunity to speak is I'm for unity. Um, you know, and I know that we're not always going to agree on every issue. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not trying to profess that we're ever going to agree on every issue, including labor and management. But certainly uh, in in my role as governor, I'm working every day to be a unifier, to bring people together. How do we move Alabama together? Uh, I was meeting uh, with a group of um, African-American pastors today, and that was that was part of our conversation was racial reconciliation, because why do we not ever bring that to light? And why are we scared to talk about that in Alabama. And sometimes it's union and management issues. You know, let's bring it to light. Let's get to the table with that as governor, uh, because I view that as a role. How do we resolve conflict and how do we move the state forward? That's what I want to work for as, as governor of Alabama. And I sure appreciate you guys giving me the chance to talk about that some today. Yep. Thanks for your time, Lou. I appreciate it. Where can people find out more about your campaign? LouIn22.com. Thank you at the very beginning for uh, pointing that out, uh, Jacob. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, and please have me back because I really enjoyed this dialogue. I always say I'm a good listener. Uh, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to be for all Alabamians. Follow me on social media, LouIn22.com. Vote Lou for governor. Uh, vote Lou in 22 for governor uh, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And thank y'all again so much for having me. Yep. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, guys. All right, folks, you just finished listening to our full unedited conversation with Lou Burdett. He is a Republican candidate for governor, and that is going to be it for us on Overtime this week. We will be back next week uh, with some good stuff. I think I've already I've already got some stuff in the works for next week. Let me see if I can maybe give you some ideas. I think that we are talking to... Yeah, we're talking to Daniel Tate from Energy Alabama about his um, about some of the stuff that they have been able to do uh, securing back pay for consumers in Alabama who were overcharged by Alabama Power and some of the education work that they do around renewables and stuff like that. So that's going to be an interesting show. Um, uh, the week after that, I booked Josh Brewer from RWDSU to talk to him about some of their stuff outside of Amazon. Because, like, RWDSU represents, like, 10,000 workers uh, in the southeast, including thousands in Alabama. So, a couple weeks from now, we're going to be talking to him and a poultry plant worker about 
poultry plants and, and the stuff that RWDSU has been doing there. We're going to be talking to Scott Eric uh, about Unionly, which is what we use for our online store and for our um, and for our sustaining memberships. We've just got we've got lots of good stuff in the works. So so make sure that you're subscribed to us wherever you get us. If you're if you're on your podcast, uh, if you're listening to us on YouTube, make sure that you're subscribed uh, and and supporting the show if you think that it's good. So uh, so with all that out of the way, we appreciate your time and we will see you next week.